First, though, it is going to be back to school tomorrow for many, many students in BC. We heard from the BC Teachers Federation earlier today. Coming up, I'll play a bit more of the comments from the president of the BCTF, Terry Mooring, and what they are hoping the beginning of school will look like. Right now, though, let's bring in Cindy Dalglish, the PAC president for Ecole Woodward Hill School, as well as an education advocate. Thank you so much for being with us again. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts? Where is your, I guess, anxiety level as we head back into school this year? Well, this time I have a high schooler and an elementary school uh, student uh, for the first time. So, uh, you know, high school, we've got the mask. uh, You know, we have to, the kids have to wear their masks. So I'm glad to see that happening. Um, My youngest is also going to have to wear a mask. But she's going to be in a school building where cohorts are no longer going to be in play. And therefore, some of the kids may not be wearing masks that are the younger ones, but they're all going to be intermingling throughout the school. You know, assemblies are still going to happen. All, all the other stuff is really just going to keep happening that uh, was pre-COVID. So there is a little bit more nerves around, around that for sure. Um, I would say that in the high school, you know, we're, we're concerned that the school population is just so big that even with, with mask wearing, that's just probably not quite enough. The BC Teachers Federation again put out that note, put out that call today, saying they would like the mask mandate. They would like more measures as far as proof that ventilation has been increased or has been dealt with, and some other measures heading into the school year. What would you like to see, or would you agree that those things do need to be addressed as we head back to classes tomorrow? Yeah, hundred um, percent. The ventilation piece uh, is huge in the sense that you know. I, I believe the government came out and said that they've upgraded all of the ventilation to the proper standards, but my question would be, what are those proper standards, and are they keeping in mind the sheer volume of students that are going to be using that ventilation? And I don't think it's adequate. So I support the BCTF's message for for both the mask wearing and the ventilation, absolutely. Uh, does that one seem a bit, to me that one sticks out as if it's a matter of buying portable air filtration systems or HEPA filters or things, we have them at the office where I've been working. If it was a matter of purchasing those and making sure they were in the schools, that one seems like it could have more easily been done perhaps than, than the other ones. Is it strange to you that we're not in a situation where at least that part has been dealt with? Yeah, it is strange because I'd like to see their proof that they've done all these upgrades. I don't think it's true. I just don't see it. I, I look at, I look around at the classrooms. I know some teachers are purchasing these things for themselves, like the, the smaller portable ones for their classrooms. Um, but I want to see. I want to see the proof. I want to see the invoices. I want to see the installation. Um, and those are types of those granular types of things are not something that we're usually privy to. So yeah, I I um, I'm nervous when so when someone comes along and says we've done all this and we're all like yeah, but not in my school. Hmm. So um, you know it, it's a, a source of frustration for sure. Uh, Terry Mooring also talked about the fact that there will not be the widespread notifications this year when there's been a COVID exposure in a classroom. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I I really don't understand why we would not continue to notify our school population when notifications have been out. It's really frustrating to think that, you know, my child's classmate could have had COVID and only those that are considered um, 
to be in, you know, potentially in trouble with COVID are going to get notified. Um, I, I can understand where the ministry is saying we don't want to increase the anxiety, but I really think we're increasing the anxiety by not knowing. Uh, because did that work last year or, or do you think that was not that it would be comforting, but did parents appreciate getting that notification, even if their child perhaps hadn't been in, in very close contact or wasn't at higher risk? Yeah, I, I really do. I think uh, the more knowledge you have, the less your anxieties and your ability to have your brain go in all sorts of different directions. Um, you know, the more information someone has that's credible and trustworthy, the better our mental health will be. And when we're getting less information and the information prior, you know, there was a lot of issues around what is a cluster, what's an outbreak, you know, if it was in a a senior's home or a long-term facility versus in a school, they seem to have different definitions. Um, So I think there's a lack of trust around the language that we were using around that. And maybe that's more why we had more anxiety when these letters went out. Because if we're seeing multiple letters in a week, we're asking the question, why is that not considered an outbreak or a cluster? And uh, we're getting told, oh, it's isolated, it's isolated. So I think it really just comes down to that trustworthiness of the information we're getting and less so about, you know, uh, the anxiety of, of the, the families. Uh, the families are anxious because they don't have the proper information. Right. And, and Cindy, one other question, and you mentioned that you now have a student that's in high school this year. That was another concern that while vaccine clinics are being set up in some parts of the province, it doesn't look like that's going to be happening in Metro Vancouver. Would you like to see vaccine clinics in the schools as well? Yeah, I, can, I, I would. However, I also understand how... Um, how difficult that would be to to do. Uh, if I think about how many high schools alone in Surrey, uh, the number of resources, the costs associated, you know, th- there's also the fact that, you know, some families are, for different reasons, are not going to be able to vaccinate their students. And uh, I think we need to be respectful of that and keep those public health options open. You know, we've got the rec centers open. Um, and then maybe we just need to start phone calling families to say, you know, we need you to make sure your youth are getting the vaccinations as necessary. So I can, I can see both sides to that, and I can understand why we may not be able to do it in high school. But um, sure, if we had the resources to do it, I don't see why not. All right. We'll leave it there. Cindy, thanks so much, and good luck on the first day of school tomorrow. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for having me. Well, it is safe to say for a lot of people, their work environment has changed during the pandemic, whether it's working entirely from home, working partly in the office, partly from home, maybe switching jobs altogether, or perhaps making your time, well, making it perhaps more efficient and going down to a four-day work week. Would it be possible, though, to permanently shift to some kind of four-day work week and still get the productivity we've come to want and need for that matter. Well, Stephen Globerman is a resident scholar as well as the Addington Chair in Measurement at the Fraser Institute. They have just put out some new information when it comes to the possibility of looking at a four-day work week in a more permanent way. And Stephen Globerman is with me on the line now to talk a little bit more about that and about what it might actually look like. You're welcome. 
It is Labor Day, so a good day to talk about what the future of work might look like or could look like. And there has been a lot of talk about a potential transition to a four-day work week. You've studied this and written about this. What do you think then would need to happen or would need to be in place for Canadians to move to a four-day work week? Well, the most... uh the most important imperative is is that productivity increases because um, without increases in productivity, reducing work implies reducing um, financial compensation. And I think most Canadian workers, when they think about the benefits of a four-day week, uh, have in mind the idea that their their compensation would at least remain the same, if not increase. So without without commensurate increases in productivity that that feature of a four-day week isn't isn't going to be realized and then it becomes a, a different proposition for workers entirely. Because there are some places I know that offer workers a four-day work week but it's not as though it's a, it's a four-day eight-hour work week in many cases at least from what I've seen it's doing a four-day, 10-hour 10 hour, 10 days, so you're still doing the same amount of work as somebody who might stretch it out over five days. Have you looked at that, if there's a difference in productivity, if someone's working a 10-hour day as opposed to an eight-hour day? Well, the short answer is no, we haven't looked at that specifically, although I've, I've certainly looked at some studies which have, have tried to evaluate different working arrangements um, um, so in particular, the few studies that I've seen suggest that the um, the shorter number of days, longer number of hours option does not seem to be particularly um, uh, effective. Um, that really the, the, the option that most, exper- and, and these are experiments that are going on, uh, companies and government organizations literally trying out different work arrangements to see what happens. Most of the experiments I've seen are the four-day, eight-hour week, which which is really cutting down the amount of time uh, spent at work, at least in theory, by 20%. I mean, that's the option that I see most often being tried out. And even there, there's a lot of um, uncertainty about what the outcome is in terms of productivity. In, in a few cases, it seems to have worked well. In other cases, the experiment has been suspended because it was clear it wasn't working. And so what, what economists are trying to do is, is figure out, um, uh, at least have more insight into why a four-day work week might might be more productive in certain circumstances, but less productive in other circumstances. I don't think we have the answer to that yet. Do you think we've been able to gather more information or at least try more of these kinds of experiments when we look at what's happened with the pandemic and so many more people uh, where perhaps they had never been allowed to work from home before are working from home or the, or they saw their work weeks change or shorten? Do you think we'll be able to take information from that and see if it is possible to bring in some kind of permanent system like that? Well, absolutely. The pandemic was a, a motivator. Uh, for trying different uh, work arrangements uh, that have been necessitated by public health considerations, but but I think I think this would have emerged as an issue in any case. Um, living in cities, for example, in Vancouver, it's very expensive. Um, a lot of young workers can't afford to live in 
in cities and in order to be able to go into an office every day and spend eight hours in the office. So um, I think the, the dynamics of what was happening in society, aside from the COVID epidemic, would have promoted more experimentation in, in the labor market. And particularly as, as the number of workers in the workforce shrinks, um, employers have to find ways to be more efficient in using the workers they have. And, you know, work arrangements, changing the way we work is one way of innovating. Right. And is there a way then, I guess, if we're looking at innovation and how that kind of translates to productivity, is there a number where we have to see productivity increase every year? And if we continue doing that and find a way that we could do it with a four way work week, a four day work week, that that could work. Yeah, well, in, in, a, in an earlier study I did with a colleague at the Fraser Institute, we estimated that we the study was done in 2019. Um, we estimated that if if the rate of growth of labor productivity uh, was 2% per year uh, through 2030, that by 2030, the average Canadian worker could work a four-day work week, and that's, that's, that's eight hours a day, uh, and, and have the same and even, in fact, a higher, slightly higher real compensation, that is inflation-adjusted compensation, as they had in 2019. So, so that's the, the kind of the cleanest um, estimate of a, of a magic number. It's 2% per year of productivity growth. If workers are willing to trade off some compensation for more time off, well, then, then the rate of growth of productivity could be a bit lower. Right. I would imagine, too, it must depend on the type of workplace, whether we're talking about a lumber mill or a software company, a restaurant, uh, an office space. It, it must be different depending on if we're talking about firing up machinery or working in some kind of computer or data entry environment. Yeah, certainly, certainly the, the, the tasks that are involved are relevant to, to how easy it is or difficult to to make this four-day work week, uh, you know, effective and productive. But in some sense, almost every organization, including service organizations, have the opportunity to use, um, I'll call it machinery and equipment, but really we're talking about software and artificial intelligence, to, to, to use that to augment labor and to, in fact, enable the organization to be productive and 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 draw less on labor, even in restaurants now, and I'm sure you've noticed it. Um, there's there's this increasing use of robotics um, and self ordering and 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 etc. to reduce the 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 amount of labor that's needed. So the the key issue to me is is how do we um, enable organizations to to invest in what really are complements to labor uh, so that even in, in face-to-face kind of service organization type jobs, you can still um, move away from the five-day, traditional five-day, eight-hour day week. And, and, and I think you're right, it's more feasible in some organizations than others, but almost every organization has that opportunity. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Stephen Globerman, thank you so much for your time. Great to chat with you. You're welcome. 
Well, this story is not going anywhere anytime soon. And you may have been surprised or not when the news broke, I think it was Friday afternoon, that a decision had been made and the the BC Conservation Service would be involved with the culling of up to 35 coyotes in Stanley Park. There has been a lot of reaction to this. People have been signing a petition to save the coyotes. Brian Adams has been tweeting about it and taking to social media. Not sure he's an expert on animal behavior, but he's been putting his voice in this conversation as well. Let's bring on somebody who is an expert. Rebecca Bretter is an animal lawyer with Bretter Law and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know this isn't the outcome or the decision that you were hoping for or many people were hoping for, but what do you think about the plan to go in, trap and euthanize up to 35 of the coyotes? In a nutshell, I think it's extremely disappointing. It's saddening is 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 a, a complete understatement, but I think it's a complete lack of failure on the part of the government's part to do what's right. Killing is not the long-term solution. And I know that there are many people who support the killing, and let's call it what it is. I don't, I, I try to, I mean, I say call, but I try to refrain using the word call or or euthanizing these you know that that implies something good or something that the animals want or that you're doing it for the benefit of the animals the animals don't want to die and i realize that people have been injured i'm not going to downplay that either but fundamentally we need a complete shift in the way wildlife is managed in this province our outlook on on coexistence between people and wildlife there needs to be a complete overhaul I mean, there, the fact that there's this petition, and in, in the span of a very short amount of time, it's garnered well over 12,000 signatures, I think, now. I think that, and that's just one of the petitions. There, there are a bunch of them out there. It shows that people care about animals, and they're disappointed in the way the government has handled this. And so I, I could hear people say, okay, well, what were they supposed to do? These are wild animals, and they're attacking people. What are we supposed to do? I'll tell you what the government should have done and what they should be doing going forward. One, I mean, some of these are just common sense things. Wild-proof garbage bins throughout the park. Why on earth are there garbage bins that are open, available to wildlife, where then they, be, they can become habituated? We know for a fact that people have been feeding wildlife, both raccoons, coyotes, and, and other animals. So, of course, they're going to become habituated. It's free and easy food for them. Signage around the park has to be much better, telling people that it is illegal to be feeding wildlife. And probably just as importantly, or if not even more importantly on my end, there has to be enforcement. There have been absolutely zero, nada, nothing. No tickets have been issued to people who have been feeding wildlife. And, and, and known people, like people, like there, there are certain individuals who repeatedly do this. And if there are non-police officers who can figure out who these individuals are, surely the officers who have enforcement capability can figure out who these people are and ticket them heavily. It's the only way that people are going to learn. This is We cannot kill wildlife repeatedly. That's not the solution. It really isn't. And not to mention that they still have not gotten to the bottom of why this is going on. What we do know is that what is going on is very unusual for coyote behavior. They don't, they're timid animals. They're, 
they shy away from people. They're usually only seen early mornings and, and in the evenings or late at night when people aren't around. They don't want to be around people because we're not good to them, um, as, we, as can be seen now. So clearly what's going on is unusual. And for the government to wait until it gets to this point and then the only solution they have right now is to kill them is not only is it disappointing, but I think it's negligent of them to be just taking this action. I I really hope there is. I mean, I know that they're starting to put better signage. Uh, Apparently, there's a pilot project to uh, wildproof garbage bins and all that. But why a pilot project? This should be the way it it should be going forward. So not to mention, I mean, I didn't even get into the whole leg hole trap issue when the media is reporting that uh, the coyotes are being euthanized humanely. Give me a break. There is no, they are using leg hole tra- I mean, my understanding is that they're using leg hole traps first. Uh, they're putting down, they're not saying how many leg hole traps are putting around the park, but they're putting leg hole traps around the park uh, for the animals to be caught. They're, bait, they're baited traps. The animals get caught in these leg hole traps where we know that they suffer enormously. They cause excruciating pain to the point that some animals try to chew their paws off in a desperate attempt to escape. And then some uh, trapper or hunter, the contractors that are being used now by the government, are going to go and shoot and kill the animals, which raises, like, there's so many issues that this raises on and on. Now we have like hole traps throughout the park. We know that there are encampments, homeless people living in the park. How is that safe? We have firearms now being discharged in a public space. How on earth is that safe? I mean, it's the whole thing is really, it's a mess. It's gotten to a point that it's out of control. And the government better sit down with the experts who have been approaching them for months to come up with a long-term solution, because what's going on now is not the solution. Right. And you said two things there that I think are really important. One being that what's needed is a big shift because we can't repeatedly be killing wildlife. And I think that's what people are looking at here. Even if you're sad to see these animals destroyed, to see these animals killed, what is the other solution? Because it has gotten to this point and it's not as though they can be rehabilitated or they can be relocated or there's any other way to do this. Is it not to the point where these animals that have been attacking humans, they've been attacking adults, they've been attacking children, and yes, it is the fault of people who habituated them to food, but here we are. Do they not need to be killed? And then we start from scratch and hopefully have that shift so it doesn't happen again. So this is, I wish there was an easy solution, but there's no easy solution. And I I, I, I just, the answer to that is that they need to get to the bottom of what's going on. I mean, even the way they're doing it now boggles my mind and boggles the mind of many other experts, which is that they're saying they're going to trap 35 coyotes or up to 35 coyotes, or they will trap as many of the aggressive coyotes as necessary. My question is how do they know that once the animal is trapped and they shoot the animal, how do they know they got the right animal? That is, it just boggles my mind because just the way that they're doing it now, it's not like they're, uh, they're, um, they're tranquilizing the animal to figure out if it's the right animal, you know, matching DNA between their teeth and the bite marks of the person, of another person that they, that they bit or, or attacked or whatever. 
No, what they're doing is that they're just trapping randomly any coyote that gets trapped, killing them, shooting them, and then they're going to figure out if it's aggressive or not. I mean, even that, uh, how does that make any sense? And on top of that, remember, these are leg hole traps, baited leg hole traps, that it's not like there's a sign in front of the traps that other animals could read for coyotes only. We expect that there will most likely be other unintended animals and possibly dogs, unfortunately, that will get caught in these leg hole traps. And the problem with our system is that it will be almost impossible, if not impossible, to uh, to get that information after the fact because there's no obligation on the part of government to keep those uh, that type of record. Do we know there's for so many sure? so many Sorry, mm-hmm. that, that they are using the leg hold trap. I know the fur bearers put out a picture of a leg hold trap and said they believed that that was how the coyotes were going to be trapped. But do we know for sure that's the route that, that they are taking? That's the information that we're getting is that they're, used, they're calling them humane, soft padded leg hold traps. But please do not get uh, sucked into that narrative of humane trapping. And, and because it's padded, it somehow makes it less painful it doesn't these are leg hole traps that as soon as a paw gets in there it slams down it's like getting your hand slammed uh by a car door and and probably actually a lot harder than that so i mean that's the information that we're getting i'm i'll I'll be happy to be corrected but they're saying there's no other way that they could kill these coyotes other than trapping them first uh live via leg hole traps and then shooting and killing them. What else could possibly be done though? And again, I get it. None of this is, is nice to talk about. It's horrible Mm -hmm. that we've gotten to this point, but we can't be in a scenario where it's, and again, Brian Adams, for whatever reason has gotten in this, he's comparing it to the wolves of, uh, uh, was it Yosemite park or he's comparing Mm -hmm. it to a wolf call. We're talking about Stanley park. We're talking about a very active park in a city. Mm -hmm. We can't just leave things the way they are. So as awful and as, 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 much as it doesn't sit well, what else could possibly be done? I know that what I'm about to say is not going to be popular at all. And I'm not affiliated to any organization. No one is paying me to say anything. What I think should really happen, first of all, is that the park board and the city and the province should sit down with the experts who are not biased in the sense that their, their objective is not to kill wildlife and that their perspective is fundamentally about coexistence. They should listen to the experts. I'm not an expert on this, like in terms of animal behavior. I talk to the experts and that's how I get my information. That's my job as a lawyer. But that's the first thing is that the government should sit down with the experts and figure out what the cause of this is and figure out a long-term solution. And in the meantime, and this is the, the most unpopular probably part of what I'm going to say is if we need to shut down Stanley Park, either parts thereof, or even the entire park, even if it's going to be several months or however long it takes to figure out what's going on and to humanely, really humanely, i.e. not not have to kill the coyotes, that is what will that's what should be done. And and I realize that people may be jumping up and down and but this is Stanley Park, it's the jewel of the province, you know, that the park is for people. But you know what? This park is also for wildlife. Wildlife calls this park home. And I think it is fundamentally very arrogant and selfish of us as humans 
to take the approach at, well, I won't be able to run in the park. I won't be able to play sports in the park for several months. Okay, well, you know what? If that's what it means, that we won't be able to take that beautiful walk around the seawall or through Stanley Park or not take our jog that we take every morning or not play the sport or soccer, whatever it is, so be it. We need a fundamental shift in the way that we approach these matters so that fundamentally there is the the plan that we take and the approach that we take is based on coexistence with wildlife because wildlife is not going anywhere and nor should it go anywhere. Right, right. But even if the park was to be closed for, say, six months or a year, let's say we shut it down for a year, those coyotes are still going to be there in a year. And presumably, they're still going to be aggressive in a year's time. And and again, I don't think anybody is, is saying, I'm really excited about killing these animals. But it's not feasible to say we shut the park down forever. Well, I agree. It's not feasible to say to shut down the park forever. But I think if we had it in us to shut down the park for as long as it took, even if it meant several months or a year, for experts who really know what they're talking about and who really want to take a good look at the underlying causes and to see what's going on. Remember, some of these coyotes may be acting like this because they may have ingested opioids because we know that there are encampments in the park. We We just don't know. We know that that's a possibility. And it's a, it's really, it's a combination of things of that and people feeding wildlife and open garbage cans, and it's gotten to the point where it is. But that's why if, if we need to close down the park, even if it is for several months, then so be it. And I know that's an unpopular decision, but <laughs> I, there you go. And I know that there are people who are going to really disagree with that, but I also know just judging by people who are tweeting at me and emailing me that there are many who would support what I'm saying as well. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time. Rebecca Bretter, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill.